0: Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.
1: I thought the country was better than this in some kind of fairly profound way. And beyond like my fear of the concrete consequences, it's disturbed me. It, it makes me sad. It's like shaking my faith in society. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias here today with Ezra Klein. We started doing these chats to talk about the COVID-19 pandemic. You know, we talk about other things too. The news cycle got onto some other stuff. But today, I think we wanted to come back to coronavirus because the virus is not gone. And in some ways, it's making a comeback. And it's kind of alarming.
2: More, more good news on the weeds, man. So there is disagreement over whether or not to call this a second wave or the continuation of a first wave. In parts of the country, it is like the beginning of the first wave. But it really, we did not stop coronavirus, we did not suppress it, we did not have a huge fall in cases nationwide. And meanwhile, both in ways that are statutory of states that have been opening up in ways that are informal, like protests, but also even more informal than protests, we know that ridership on subways, like in San Francisco, BART um, has gone way up. We know that uh, people are not doing nearly as much social distancing, that they're moving around geographically much more. So we are seeing a a pretty big rise in cases. And I want to set the stage here a bit. Helen Branswell, who's an amazing reporter, particularly on coronavirus, but on many things at Stat News. She writes on Twitter that, I just think this is remarkable. The confirmed death toll from COVID-19 has passed 110,000 in the United States. That was a couple days ago. She writes, the U.S. makes up 4.25% of the global population. It has registered nearly 28% of confirmed COVID-19 cases and 27% of the global deaths caused by the virus. Now some of that might be better tracking, but certainly not all of it. So we are doing uh, an unusually bad job handling this. Meanwhile, um, The Washington Post reports that since the start of June, 14 states in Puerto Rico have recorded their highest ever seven-day average of new coronavirus cases since the pandemic began. Again, some of that might reflect better testing, but probably not all of it. Um, Among these states, or actually all of these states include Alaska, Arizona, Arkansas, California, Florida, Kentucky, New Mexico, North Carolina, Mississippi, Oregon, South Carolina, Tennessee, Texas, and Utah. So we are entering into a period where it seems like case numbers are going up, but we have not yet seen, given that there's typically about a 14-day lag here, um, a rise in cases from some of the more recent openings or from some of the potential rise from the protests. And meanwhile, there's simply a weakening of any federal or in general state Energy to, to keep a lock on this. The federal coronavirus task force is being disbanded. We're hearing a lot less from Tony Fauci. Um, Donald Trump is clearly moving on to other things. A person at the CDC who's been overseeing testing, as uh, sort of the special testings are. He's been sent back to the CDC to go back to his normal job. Um, I'm in California. LA has been reopening. Like people are tired of quarantining. For various reasons, all kinds of political players have lost legitimacy to, to call for it. And meanwhile, the coronavirus is not very interested in our politics. It is not very interested in in what we want to do or don't want to do. It is out there looking for people to infect, and it is finding them. So I think there's a real possibility that six weeks from now, things are, are, are really bad.
1: Yeah. And in particular, I mean, it does seem like in the growing states, right, which... I mean to be clear it's a minority
2: of states 14 states is not nothing but it's it's not most of them but that's the one with just highest ever 7 day averages because yes. you can have others could be growing without hitting their highest ever sure. averages they are growing slower than
1: pre lockdown northeastern united states so you know precautionary measures continue to exist and they have some kind of efficacy but not only is exponential growth inherently scary, even when it's a, it's a low number in the exponent. This summer, this was our chance. There's hot weather. You can do a lot of stuff outside in the summer. That's relatively safe. Um, schools were going to be closed anyway during the summer. And if you have cases, higher a month from now even higher two months from now even higher three months from now and then the weather starts getting colder you know you got a real sort of problem i mean the the semantics of first wave versus second wave which you alluded to are a little bit interesting right i mean in the in the 1918 flu pandemic most cities had these like very distinct multiple pulses in which it went way up and then it went way down. It stayed low for a while and then went way up again in sort of a seasonal flu type cycle. It was the flu. We don't really seem to be seeing like the states that had very high caseloads now going back up into into high numbers. is that we see states where the caseloads were never all that high to begin with, opened up without like a real plan to ensure that the numbers stay low, they just kind of felt complacent that like there hadn't been a bad coronavirus outbreak in Texas. They had these restrictions in place. It's a politically conservative state. So they started lifting the restrictions and now people are getting cases The politics are a little muted, because right now a lot of it is in meatpacking plants and in prisons, which are like socially marginal areas, rather than, you know, at ski resorts and international biotech conferences, as we kind of originally started this out. And that's, I think... Part of why this like stumbling into reopening has been sustainable, that the virus has kind of wended its way into marginalized sectors of of society that political figures are sort of comfortable writing off or saying, you know, aren't as important as the need to have like a restaurant economy uh, up and running. But I just have never seen any reason to think that it would stay limited to those kind of groups.
2: And also, I mean, to just be clear, it's that's an incredibly immoral political equilibrium. Yes. Like it's it's a disaster to just say we are going to become comfortable with coronavirus killing 1000 to 2000 to 3000 people a day if this keeps going up, because now we're about uh, 1000, you know, because it's going to pull like Donald Trump is not going to know the people who are dying, which seemed to like there seemed to have been a moment where Donald Trump knew some people who got coronavirus and he got a little bit serious about it. But if that's going to end, it's easy to imagine a strategy of neglect becoming the the way we handle this and we just become inured to an ongoing disaster. And look, there are complicated things here, right? It is the protests, which were always very complicated question and calculation from the perspective of coronavirus, right? People were facing two very different kinds of risk and and choosing to fight one, even at the risk of exposing themselves to another. But it definitely created a lot of pushback and a lot of sense that Oh, well, the liberals who are calling for lockdown and social distancing don't do it when they care about the issue. So now, so now there's this kind of weakening of like who actually had the political or scientific capital to call for this kind of thing to keep going, which I think is going to be weaponized on on, on any effort to do it again. One of the great horrors of this is that the same community that um the the African-American community that has been or felt endangered from the police that saw members of its own community murdered like on video that was out protesting is also the community dying at the highest rates from coronavirus. Right. And so there is just a chance here and maybe even a likelihood for a really horrific and, and long epidemic in a way that I think should really scare us. And and one thing that I think is worth bringing into this, I think the political equilibrium around economic support is getting much worse. So we had this unusually strong or unexpectedly strong jobs report last month. And that has led a lot of, particularly Senate Republicans, who have not picked up that last House bill, the $3 trillion, I think it was called the HEROES Act, that would have, among other things, extended the $600 um, unemployment increase from July 31st to the end of the year, did a bunch of things like state and local local aid, Republicans looked at that jobs report and said, great, the economy is having the V-shaped recovery. All those people warning that it wouldn't are wrong. And like their, pl- their economic theory on this has been that if you keep extending these things, people are not going to have to go back to work because they're making more money from being unemployed. So they're not going to extend them. You're going to have a building pandemic happening. So it's getting more dangerous out there, not less. And we're going to remove economic support from the economy so people have – like a like an economic necessity so they don't starve to go back out into an economy when what we need to control the virus is to make it possible for people to to not do that work meanwhile like most richer people are going to be able to work from home and so like the conditions are setting up here for something really really quite bad and really deeply um unjust
1: Well, and I think, you know, we can't underrate the extent to which state governments have been hung out to dry. My father owns a cabin in Maine that my family is planning to drive up to in in a couple of weeks. And, you know, if we've got no office to go to and no camp for a kid to be in, it'll be nice to be in the countryside, give him someplace to, to run around. So I've been paying attention to the political situation there. And it's clear that the governor of Maine, has been very reluctant to see a huge wave of summer tourists come into the state. Uh, she is very concerned, I think reasonably, that that kind of uh, seasonal travel surge is going to take a state that has very little coronavirus uh, in it right now and is going to essentially overwhelm it. It's, it's a low population rural state with minimal resources. So the current rule is that if you come in from out of state, you need to quarantine for 14 days, like for real deal quarantine. And, you know, that was our plan. We're going to go do it. I mean, it's my, my dad owns a house there, so we can go there for a long time and, and, and do the quarantine, do the cold deal, but it would crush the normal tourist economy that they enjoy because, you know, people want to make a week long visit, stuff like that. And. As it has become clear to Governor Mills that the federal government isn't coming to the rescue with money, you know, she has been increasingly needing to back down on these quarantine procedures. And I think the, the full process of caving on, on the quarantine idea hasn't yet worked its way out, but it's, it's going too soon. And it's because they know they're not going to have support in terms of trying to keep the population of their state safe from a a horde of uh, weekend tourists from, from New England. And so many places are facing that kind of situation where the Trump administration's plan to use fiscal pressure to essentially force governors to reopen at a more rapid pace than they're comfortable with is really, really working well. And it's it's basically the opposite of like we did a, a review on this show of like the different reopening PDFs, and they all they all had the the opposite viewpoint, right The viewpoint of all of those PDFs was that people would want to open up because it's boring <laughs> to sit in your house all day, right and like you would want to do economically destructive right
2: but like I mean, it's like a lot of people are in a lot of pain.
1: But, but, I mean that that the government needed to restrain that impulse, yeah, right, And there were going to be all these criteria: you can reopen if you hit X, y, and z, and so not reopening would be painful, so we should do what we can to relieve the pain. But we flipped that around. we've said there will be no relief, so now everyone is being sort of forced into this into this scramble. And the gating criteria from the CDC, like, don't forget about the elaborate test and trace and, like, Google's going to track you wherever you are. But just the baseline stuff where, like, well, you're supposed to check in your hospitalizations and pause if they're going up. Like, that's all been thrown out the window completely. And, you know, the, the press conferences are gone. Dr. Fauci is gone. Dr. Burks is gone. It's like this true nightmare where we're just kind of hoping for the best. And, you know, it's it's not that many cases in Texas, even though they're at their all time high. But they're supposed to shut back down if the cases arise. Like, that's the sign that your reopening isn't working. And if you're going to reopen regardless, like, wh- when does that ever end?
2: It's worth saying, number one, that other countries really have done this better. I mean, there are now countries like Iceland, like like New Zealand, that have beat coronavirus like basically entirely. Um, there are countries that have kept it very, very, very suppressed. And some of them are big countries, right? Like Germany's doing a much better job than we are. We've done a bad job. So we took all this time and we wasted it. And I think this is like the, the really key thing here: that it's not like there is a plan somewhere that somebody's gonna say, okay, you know what? I'm so sorry like we fucked this up. Give us another 45 days. We now know how to set up the testing tracing suppression mechanism having watched it happen elsewhere and we really think we can beat this thing. Instead there's a just a kind of giving up. I think the semi optimistic version of this is that in the time we did do lockdown and the sort of cultural recognition that this was a big deal we have changed social habits in ways that are going to stick at like 40% or something right so we don't by any means have you know 100% adherence to mask wearing but we have a lot more mask wearing than we had in february we don't by any means have like people washing their hands as often as Dr. Fauci wishes they would, but people, I think we all wash our hands more on average than we did before and for longer on average than we did before. You know, people are still, they're not social distancing like they were maybe in April, but they are social distancing more than they were in January. Um, People who are more vulnerable, right? Like older people, people with comorbidities, they have a sense that this is really dangerous for them. So some of them are, are self-segregating and self-quarantining at higher rates than, than, than others in the population. Who are beginning to open up, and maybe you put all that together, and as you say, like there's a rise in cases, but you don't get a sort of New York City style like disaster. Maybe you put all that together, and what you end up having is one of the original goals of the flatten the curve thing is, it remains true, which is that we keep the health system from being overwhelmed, and so we manage to like increase the length of coronavirus, um, but you never have a situation where like people can't get a ventilator if they need one. But like, that's a world with a very high death toll. I mean, you've written on this, I think, in, in important and persuasive ways, Matt, that there's a real difference between flattening the curve so like you don't overwhelm your ICUs and crushing the curve so people don't die from coronavirus in huge numbers. And like what I think we have a chance of doing is just a continued flattening of the curve, which is to say we have just enough mitigation measures to keep ICUs from becoming overwhelmed but we're accepting that coronavirus is going to go through a huge percentage of the population which as of now it hasn't and that that means you know a death toll that's currently 110,000 or so is going to become a death toll of 300,000, 400,000, 500,000 you know unless we get a vaccine much quicker than than we expected to um, I will also say just like one thing I saw today that was very concerning, uh, something people pay attention to is a percentage of tests that are coming back positive. And one of the good news pieces of everything recently has been that New York City and the Northeast generally, where the incredibly intense initial outbreak was, has been looking a lot better. So it's like if you look at the country without the Northeast, cases are going up, but to the extent they look like they're going down, it's because like that outbreak got under control. Over the past couple of days, the percentage of cases in New York City that have been positive went from one percent to three percent. Now, maybe that's just a blip for some reason we don't totally understand. But if that is sustained, you could see things getting bad there again. Like nobody thinks New York City is now immune to coronavirus, so like things could get really rough.
1: So one one question that you know I think is a little bit of an only time will tell situation right now is how do we, now that we understand the basic coronavirus dynamics, is can we do a better job, can states do a better job of safeguarding their nursing home populations? Because, you know, we've always known elderly are more vulnerable. The nursing home setting is not that great from a disease transmission standpoint. And if you look at things that went really awry, like the Swedish herd immunity strategy. like On paper, the idea of that strategy was, okay, you need to protect the elder care homes. And the reason to not lock down is that you can't keep the elder care homes isolated forever. So it's actually better for the youthful population to get sick faster so that you sort of blow through the virus and then you don't need to worry as much. But they weren't at all able to isolate their their nursing homes, right? And so, you know, we talk about Sweden didn't lock down, the restaurants stayed open, the, uh, you know, uh, schools stayed open for young kids. But the people dying in Sweden were not the people going to the restaurants, and certainly wasn't the little kids going to school. It was the exact same population that was dying in Milan, that was dying in New York, which is a very elderly population, and very particularly people who were in nursing homes. In New York, and I think several other Northeastern states, they had this disastrous policy where they told nursing homes that they had to readmit COVID-positive patients who were not so gravely ill that they personally needed to be in the ICU. So in principle, at least, the country could now do what Sweden meant to do rather than what they actually did, and not do those readmissions into the hospitals that we saw in in New York and New Jersey and Connecticut. Uh, somehow, you know, have better isolation protocols, have the N95 masks, you know, understand all that stuff, the UV light indoors, different kinds of things like that. And, and in that case, you could limit the death toll relative to what a sort of basic mathematical projection would would suggest you could get. But that's also just pure speculation. We have successful examples of test and trace systems. We have successful examples of like pure isolation, curve crushing. We haven't seen any place pull off this like nursing home pirouette. And America doesn't have the kind of quarantine system that would really support that. It's like if your husband gets sick at the meatpacking plant and you've got to go to work cleaning bathrooms at the nursing home, like what do you do? Like there's no, you'll lose your job if you don't come to work. Like you're not sick. So you can't take a sick day. There's nothing in place that would actually uh secure these kind of systems. So it's both like a theoretical possibility and not one I'm that excited about
2: two questions present themselves here. One is, if things start getting bad again, and we've seen this before, right? Say like the Spanish flu, the second wave was much worse in terms of death toll than the first wave. So it's very possible for this to get worse. So if things start getting bad again, like what could we do or what could we be doing now? And then I think the second related question is, is there the political capacity to do any of it? Like, I think it is just true that we wasted our first shot on this. And in the aftermath of wasting our first shot on this... A number of things have happened um, that are difficult. So Donald Trump has clearly uh, developed or maybe always had the political theory that what will really matter for his re-election is the economy and like better to have a lot more people dying from COVID than a down stock market. I do think, um, whatever your view on the sort of morality of the protesting, uh, that the protest did damage to the like lockdown position, that um, the right who did like did not want to be in lockdown, like now... Feels like it has a cudgel it can use somewhat effectively. And like just in terms of raw politics, I think they are right. I think that the um whether or not the protests were were a good idea, I think they, you know, did damage here. And so I don't know, like, even if we knew what to do, that there are political leaders right now who, when you combine like all of the political difficulties of doing this, all of the polarization around it, um, and like the frustration people have around like the idea that other people's essential activities are being allowed but not their essential activities, and then just the exhaustion of a population that has been to varying degrees in lockdown now for months and wants to see friends, wants to see family, wants to go to a restaurant, wants to go back to their job, wants to get childcare, wants their children in school. I am just do not know. Like In a country where we already didn't seem to have the political capacity to do this well when there was political will to do it well, like if we have the state capacity to do it well now that I'm not sure there's political will to do it well.
1: I would be a little harder on the protests around this, frankly, because so much of the uh, discourse that I've seen on the protests and COVID has taken an individual risk assessment frame. You know, and has talked about how people need to balance the sort of risks that are involved with this with like also the risks of of the problems. and i and i and I get it. Like I inhabit the same liberal intellectual circles as the people putting out these letters do uh, or even talking to to journalists do. But it's the not the frame that was used to discuss the lockdowns in the first place. When we were going into severe restrictions in March and April, the message was very clear that the issue wasn't about your risk and your individualized balance of the assessments. It was about a social obligation to the most vulnerable people. And during the protests, we really... Flipped that. Like a lot of the the political establishment and a lot of the public health establishment reverted to a sort of individualized risk assessment frame. And I think that that is going to just continue carrying forward, that it's a sort of everyone for themselves. If you're vulnerable, like, of course, don't go to the protest, don't go to the restaurant, uh, don't fly in an airplane. But, you know, it's up to you as an individual to decide what you are comfortable with doing. And it's just always been the case that the individual personal risk to a non senior citizen, non immunocompromised population is, is modest. Right. And like people can go kind of do what they want with that. And that makes it so hard to flip back around right as infection spreads i might become more alarmed and thus become more hesitant to go back and do things so you have an ebb and flow on that dimension but it's like once you abandon the rhetoric i mean first the republicans abandoned the economic underpinnings of we're all in this together and then i think progressives sort of abandoned the ideological and conceptual underpinnings of it And we're not going to be able to put that back together. If Congress isn't able to do a big economic rescue package now, they're definitely not going to do it like in October, right? Like that's not that's not how Congress works. And it's not going to be possible to sort of like throw into reverse the like, oh, hey, it's not about you kind of stuff like Unfortunately, it's it just seems dead to me. And and it makes me wonder what governors are going to be able to do at all to, to mitigate problems.
2: I have a bit of the opposite view on the protest leading to the same conclusion, though, which is I think what made the protests a really hard issue is they worked off of the same risk assessment. I think that in a lot of different directions, people have been comfortable saying that This is a collective issue because unlike on other issues, um, the question here is not your individual risk. It is a risk you pose to other people. It is a risk this issue poses to other people. So on coronavirus, yeah, you may be young and healthy, but I don't care that you want to go to a bar because you could create a coronavirus chain that ends up killing my parent. Similarly, but protesting
1: on, is altruistic.
2: Yeah, the systemic racism thing is the same way. And I think it's actually one reason why a lot of epidemiologists were were very um, one, they study this, but like, but two, did not want to question it because it has a the, the same dynamic that like, yes, there are a lot of people for whom George Floyd's death does not actually speak to the risks they face in everyday life. But there are other people for whom it really does. And so the, the same way that like, coronavirus was their business because it was a a systemic risk, I think people were very cautious about um, opposing the protests because they were also a systemic risk. And so like, you know, like Sure it's like easy for me to say don't go protest when like it's not my community that feels like it has long been under threat from like oppressive policing but sort of wherever you come down on that i think it goes to exactly where you're saying which is what seems to me to be coming now is like an individualized risk period Right, where the way we functionally handle coronavirus is that it is about the risks you feel willing to take. And some people will either feel willing to take more or less risk, or, and I think this is really important, be only capable of taking more or less risk. So there is a difference between the situation of somebody who has their job, has like a job where they make enough money and can work from home and like the question for them is like do they feel safe going to a restaurant or like do they want to see their friends and if so do they do it outside or inside right like there's a lot of optionality in the risk that's different than somebody who has lost their job for whom the expanded unemployment runs out on July 31st who needs to get a job who maybe like they do have a comorbidity right maybe they do have COPD or maybe they do have hypertension or diabetes or something they don't want to be out there in an economy in a in a world where the Pandemics have affected them, or maybe they live with their parent, or they live with a partner who has who's immunosuppressed, but they like can't economically survive without going back out, and so there are going to be these like two like issues that are one, it's about the individual risks people feel they face, and then there's going to be like and and what they want to avoid or not want to avoid, and then there's going to be the individual risk that people would like to avoid but cannot because of the realities of like trying to live in the economy that we have um, with where Congress is likely to go are not going to give them optionality around this. And I don't think we have had a good conversation about individual risk like at all. Um, I think it's very hard for people to assess the risks. I think people have sort of weird views on this or like things they do that seem to me to be dangerous and things they do that like seem to me to be um. Not that dangerous. Uh, risks really change depending on what the background situation of your city or state are like. And so, in some way, I think like possibly the retreat position here, like the fallback, is gonna be to have a better conversation about like individual risk so people can make more informed decisions. Right. To like go to an example, I think we've talked about on the show before. I really hated it when you would get these like liberal scolds on Twitter getting all mad at people going to the beach. Because like one way of keeping lockdown like sustainable is let people go to the beach. Like in my area, the parks have closed. The like the national parks and the state parks and the regional parks. Some of them you can go to, some of them you can't. But what they've all done is close their main parking lots. Mm -hmm. Um, or restrict their main parking lot so they don't get too crowded. These are really big places. Like I've been to like, they're not crowded. You should want many more people at them, but like we didn't. So I think there was like a really weird ranking of individual risk where people were like not willing to take like any risk for a minute. Now we're gonna get into a place where it's gonna go the other way, where people are gonna be forced into taking much too much risk with like real grievous costs, right? People will die. Um people will get very sick. They will be, um, you know, they will like bear the scars of that, you know, potentially forever, depending on how this disease actually works in folks. I feel very grim about it right now.
1: The one optimistic note I would strike is we we, we did have an interesting thing where when Missouri opened up really quickly after they opened up, it turned out that two hairstylists at one of the salons tested positive for COVID-19. And there was a lot of, oh my God, what a disaster. Um, and so they tested the people, you know, the, the clients who've been in there. And it turned out that none of them actually got it. And that adherence to masks had been, you know, very rigorous in there. And that that sufficed to prevent uh, the virus from from spreading. The situation in Japan similarly seems to suggest that widespread mask wearing and just like basic personal hygiene beyond that can be quite effective at suppression. And it's bad that the masks, like everything else, have gotten caught up in America's like endless maw of culture war stuff. Because to the extent that we have like a a shot at this thing, I think it's got to hinge on that kind of stuff, on getting people to wear masks, on getting um, the actual medical grade procedure masks on the faces of people who are out there working, you know, the clients, maybe cloth masks are are fine, assuming you're not going out that much, Um, washing hands, um, telling people like, you can do stuff if you want to. But like, I personally would not want to do a group exercise class wearing a mask. Like that sounds really unpleasant, and like you can just go run outside. like I don't like running outside. Uh, i I would rather go back to my gym, but I don't want to go to the gym with a mask. like that seems annoying, but then don't go to the gym. Y- you know what I mean like it, there's there's a a range of things and and it does make me you know concerned about restaurants because obviously, you can't wear a mask while you're eating unless, I don't know, maybe someone has figured out a way to do it. It doesn't seem like it would it would work for me. But it speaks to the total lack of any kind of strategy here that like, that's not what the president is saying. That's not really what governors are saying. We had a dialogue like this a few weeks ago. It is just the most shocking thing to me that we just keep stumbling through this without like an effort I feel psychologically impacted by this, the way I think some people felt by Donald Trump winning the presidential election. Like, I thought the country was better than this in some kind of fairly profound way. And beyond, like, my fear of the concrete consequences, it's disturbed me. It it makes me sad. It's, like, shaken my faith in society.
2: I think to pick up on masks for a minute, I agree with shaking one's faith in society. To pick up on masks, that's a place where it is weird to me that capitalism has not worked a little bit better than it has there or something, public health communication, something. So from the evidence we have, mask wearing is very effective. Um, It is, I mean, like it is a huge... Like, issue that at the beginning guidance on this was so bad, but like it changed. Mask wearing seems to be the thing. There have been some papers suggesting that if you could get sufficient adherence to mask wearing, that would bring the reproduction rate down beneath one, which would bring help the virus die out. It's very exciting. Given that it is weird to me that as somebody who like covers this issue professionally and follows like dozens of epidemiologists on Twitter and the whole thing, I don't know which mask I should buy. Right. I have a lot of masks. I have like a half dozen of them, you know, but they're like, you know, whatever, like cloth masks. I got some of them on Etsy. I got some of them from you know stores. And I would like to know, like what like I would like, maybe maybe the wire cutter has done this and I just haven't seen it. Like, I would like a wire cutter thing on like this is the mask you should buy. It's more comfortable than you expect. It is um like pretty effective because, like, there is, for instance, one paper that suggested using two different kinds of material in a mask might make it more effective. Like, this has that quality to it. A bunch of people are using the masks with little ventilators in them. Those are incredibly ineffective. The thing the mask is mainly doing is keeping you from spreading it. The ventilator makes it more comfortable so you can breathe out more easily and it like filters things coming in as i understand the workings of that but even if i have the workings wrong what every epidemiologist says is like these ventilator masks they look more impressive so a lot of people think they are more effective but in fact they are less effective like possibly completely ineffective and they should basically not be sold like i would just like to know like who I should buy a mask from and like I would like that person to make that that company or whomever to make enough masks, as opposed to like just you know, getting it from random people who know how to sew on um DIY sites. It's just like that's a weird thing. Like that is like a pretty straightforward approach. And it like I am surprised that there have not been like a faster rise of dominant producers who like seem to know what they're doing and have been sort of certified by the public health community it's like this is a good mask like this is going this is a right balance of is not incredibly hot to wear does not fog up your glasses constantly to the extent that is possible, and is like as protective as we know how to make a you know assuming we still need to save surgical grade masks for um public health professionals is like as protective as a non surgical grade mask can be,
1: yeah i mean you know it, it, there was a um balashi Srinivasan, uh was a did a, an early COVID 19 alarmist Twitter thread uh, back in January that many people have sort of looked back on as, a, as prescient. Um, and one of the interestingly, like non prescient things he said there was that we would have all this innovation in the mask space. And you look back on that, you know, people make predictions that don't pan out all the time. But that's one where, like, I don't actually understand why the prediction didn't pan out. Like he said that. And at the time, most people were like, "Eh, the virus isn't a big deal. And then later, the virus was a big deal. But the government was very like, "Eh, I'm not really sure you even need masks. But then once everyone went into the virus is a big deal and you really need a mask mode, it seems like you should have innovation in the realm of masks. Like just the glasses fogging thing is incredibly annoying and clearly solvable because if I futz with my masks long enough, I can get them set like just so that, that my breath goes out through the side. So somebody who's smarter than me, I I just like I feel like they could make a mask that does this like that's that's good for glasses wearers or with a moldable, moldable nose thing that then sticks where it does. And there's been like nothing on it. And the government has been... Continually unhelpful, I think, on the mask subject. Like, even once the guidance changed, they've been very little in terms of, okay, this is our critical public health intervention. We need to do something. I note an interesting contrast with cleaning materials. Uh, if you go to the EPA website, they have like really clear explanations of which things they believe will kill uh, COVID uh, infected uh, services. You know, so it's like if you want to know, like, can I use this bath towel thing to disinfect my desk? There they will they will tell you that, right? And there's like nothing on on the masks, just like something would be good instead of getting the respirators that we want for our healthcare workers. Um, uh, but it's like the failures are so like multifaceted that I think people haven't zoomed in on this quite as much as they as they maybe should, but
2: it's it's very striking. Um, We'd better take another break, though. Let's take a break. And then can I read you a Trump tweet? Yeah.
0: Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics Podcast, from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media. Pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context. And it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines.
2: So earlier today, Donald Trump, one of Twitter's most uh, influential users, wrote, the Federal Reserve is wrong so often. I think this is in relationship to some projections for unemployment. I see the numbers also and do much better than they do. We will have a very good third quarter, a great fourth quarter, and one of our best ever years in 2021. We will also soon have a vaccine and therapeutics cure. That is my opinion. Watch. (laughs) You know, It's it's a good opinion. One of the things that is striking to me about trump is for all like the vaunted talk of his political genius he has a theory of what's happening here that just seems like politically suicidal so like if you just run this forward what's uh, what appears to me to be about to happen is coronavirus infections are going to go up like we're going into the summer that might keep them a little bit suppressed so maybe like what's going to happen is that like come the july 31st unemployment cutoff like Coronavirus won't be quite so bad because of the summer and we'll cut off the expanded unemployment simultaneously. And so then you are in August, September, October. These are months that really matter for an election. And at that exact moment, particularly September, October, you'll have the fall You'll have flu season. So flu plus coronavirus plus colder weather like, are gonna be potentially really overwhelming to hospitals. You will have a very high death toll. You will have this economic support having drained out of the economy um, and people like now in a lot of pain. One thing that we've talked about, I think here on the show, certainly on the site, is that there's been a somewhat decoupling of the economic indicators and the economic pain, like a lot of people who are unemployed or even you know making more money with the UI than they were before. So the amount of like agony is not what you would think from looking at the headline indicators. So we're in a position where the headline indicators might begin looking better, but the level of agony goes up. And if you want to be reelected, this is just not what you would do. Like you would really want to keep a lid on coronavirus. You would really want to make sure there's a lot of economic support in the economy. And you would really just try to be like like minimizing pain, maximizing benefits, and like trying to get through the election without a disaster. Whereas he seems to me to just be courting a disaster on some exceptionally narrow view of the stock market as like the only valid indicator for economic prospects or like more much more than prospects for like the current state of the economy. Is nobody around him can tell like his poll numbers look. Fucking terrible. I mean, Joe Biden is up by between seven and eight points for comparison. Mitt Romney was down by 1.5 at this point in um 2012. So like this is not working. And they seem to be doubling down on the parts of it that are not working. And on some just like baseline level of believing the one thing Donald Trump cares about is winning, I cannot figure out why. I mean, so I was trying
1: to make some sense out of this. I, you know, th- there's a lot of different opinions about how to think about Donald Trump out there. I, I don't have a strong opinion about how to think about Donald Trump, but sometimes when you see people doing things, you could ask yourself, like, well, why might this make sense, right? Like, what, what would be a theory under which it makes sense? So one possibility is you think of Trump as the owner of a bankrupt business, But the loans haven't been called in yet. So since the business is bankrupt, it doesn't really matter if you make a modest profit next week, because you're not going to you're not going to have enough money to pay back what you do. But if you take some huge risk, even if the risk has negative expected value, if it has a 10 percent chance that you're going to make some huge fortune, like it can be worth doing anyway. So. The thing about this whole Trump caboodle is like, what if there is a breakthrough on therapeutics? Or what if the outbreaks do just end up limited to prisons and meatpacking factories and masks kind of work and the economy does just sort of roar back, adding three, four million jobs a month, uh, every month for, for the next four months, then Being so extreme on this, right? And like brushing everything off and like telling the haters to go shove it could really make you look like a winner. Whereas being very cautious and having jobs grow more slowly and telling everybody, Oh, we got to be worried. Like we can't get complacent. Just kind of parks you in a loss. I don't think I believe that. Like fundamentally as an analysis, like Trump should try to do his job well. And it's possible that he could impress people. There's some surprising political strengths for Trump. Like Harry Enten did a tweet about how um, if you look under the hood of this polling, Trump is doing way better than he was four years ago with Latino voters specifically. Just like worse with white voters, and there are many more white voters. But like, who would have thought, Donald Trump? Doing better with Latino voters, you know? Like things are possible out there. And seeming to handle the coronavirus in a responsible way, uh, I just feel like would be a no brainer. But I, I guess he's not capable of it, right? I mean, like at some level, that's what it has to be. That like he
2: just Yeah, I think I think that's what it comes down to. I think he doesn't want to deal with it, right? I think that he, like, it exists in a zone of denial for him, basically. He thinks it has been weaponized against him. He feels unfairly treated by coronavirus. And, like, he's basically working a Jedi mind trick. Approach to the election, but it just isn't working. I mean, it is striking how bad his poll numbers are, despite the best month ever in the jobs report, right? Like that would give me some pause if I were Donald Trump. So I, I take your point too, though. It's like it's it's hard to come up with a coherent theory of Trump, but it is just to say that I would have thought here the political incentives are lined up to try to do a good job, right? To try to keep a second outbreak from coming. And to try to make sure economic support doesn't leave the economy too early. Like you could do a lot, right? So let's say you hold the view that the UI, the expanded UI at $600 is keeping people who should go back into the economy from going back into the economy. It doesn't really seem to be given that a lot of people just went back into the economy anyway, but okay, fine. That's your view. I disagree with it. That should not stop you from doing state and local aid, right? You still don't want states to have to lay people off because there's a huge revenue shortfall. There's like no advantage to your economy of like not letting states keep people hired, of having states have to cut like teacher salaries or cut teachers or cut anything. And so there just isn't to me any thoroughgoing idea here. I think I've said this on the show before, but like an interesting thing in the Trump administration is that you end up getting this Venn diagram between Trump's weird impulses and then like movement conservatives. Uh-huh. and that Venn diagram tends to be do nothing. Um right. so it's like Larry Kudlow in a lot of ways does not think like Donald Trump. And Donald Trump like does not think like Larry Kudlow like on a lot of issues. But like the place where they kind of like end up coming together is like Larry Kudlow is not like economic stimulus and like Donald Trump doesn't like doing stuff. <laughs> and so like let the economic stimulus go and say the liberals are wrong about everything. Like seems to be an equilibrium like the two sides can come together on it just strikes me as crazy and a lot of like damage is going to get done. Similarly, this mask thing, like you were just saying, right, you know, hope the masks help. Like that would be a totally reasonable play. Like one thing you might want to do with that is wear a fucking mask. Right. Yes. But (laughs) Donald Trump is like publicly and objectively like anti-mask. Like he refused to wear a mask in photo ops in a mask factory. Like he visited a mask factory and would not put on a mask. So like, It has to be better for you politically if fewer people get coronavirus. There's simply no doubt that fewer people get coronavirus if, like, mask use and mask adherence is higher. One way you can make mask use and mask adherence higher is to wear a mask as a president so your people don't turn against masks, and he's done the opposite thing. So. I don't know. Uh you just couldn't have a worse person in the moment. This
1: this is the weeds so we 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 should talk about this stuff. There was a few days ago like every article on the front page of the Washington Post was about uh the protests and uh the pushback against the protesters and all that stuff except for one story which is relevant to our conversation and it was about how the Trump administration is invoking All kinds of like hazy emergency powers related to the pandemic to just like unilaterally drop regulatory enforcement. And it's such a good example of what you're talking about because it's like somehow. On their legal paperwork. Like, this pandemic is, like, such a big deal that, like, you can just dump toxic waste right into rivers now and all kinds of stuff like that. But it's, like, not a big enough deal to actually do anything other than just, like, economic policy ideas that Larry Kudlow thinks is a good idea, except now without the encumbrance of law. You know, it's not, like, unheard of stuff on some level, but That's where the um, nexus of Trump with very establishment type forces becomes so sinister, you know, like he's up there, he's not doing a good job, but like his very sort of irresponsibility makes him this incredible vehicle for this kind of nefarious type stuff. Like, you know, any Republican is going to be more skeptical of like, regulation than a Democrat, right? But people are also like, I don't know, they're trying to win. They're trying to make people like them. If somebody shows up and they're like, how about you just let us do whatever with regard to people's drinking water? Somebody somewhere in a like functioning Republican administration is going to be like, "Uh, I don't know, boss, like that's kind of a bad look. Like the polling on polluting people's drinking water is not great. Like let's maybe let's maybe think this over, and you know you you get a break on it. But in the Trump administration, it's like truly anything goes, right? And like nobody even pays attention to like what should be huge stories because there's nine thousand other insane things happening. And we have gotten, I think, more coverage of a totally hypothetical Trump race speech um, than of like. Policy making that is occurring, which is very typical of how the media has operated in, in the Trump era. But I, I just, I don't want people to come out of this thinking that they're not doing anything about coronavirus. They are invoking emergency powers to block immigration and unilaterally roll back environmental regulations. Now, why that helps, you know, is a different question, uh, but they are doing something.
2: I think that's a good place to end.
1: Yes. And we're uh, always doing something here, trying to delight and inform. And we appreciate uh, your efforts uh, listening with us. And we hope that you will wear a mask. Stay safe. Stay cautious out there. Uh, Thanks to our producer, Jeffrey Geld. uh, And the Weeds will be back on Tuesday.